0: So we're going to look at First Samuel 17. It's super long. So I'm going to tell you there's no, there's no way to break it up. It's 58 verses and there's no way to do it. There's, there's no breaks. Story that you've all heard, David and Goliath, one of the most iconic stories in all of the Bible. It's the third introduction of David that we see, back to back to back. David's been introduced as the chosen one, the anointed one of God. David has been introduced as a worshiper. And now, today, we'll see David introduced as a warrior. This is actually the first public introduction that we see. E- each time we've seen David, the stage has gotten a little bit bigger. It was just his, just his brothers, then it was the court in Saul's, um, Saul's kingdom, just the inner circle there. And now we see David being introduced to the nation as a whole, at least to the fighting men. And so again, we're just, we're going to plow through. I want you to bear with me as we read through this. I'll try to break it up, uh, so we don't, our eyes don't glaze over. If you've heard this story, and most of you have, I want to encourage you to try to re-engage with it, even though you already know what's going to happen. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damon between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with a valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. So that's nine feet, nine inches. He had a bronze helmet on his head and he wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. That's 126 pounds of armor. On his legs he wore bronze greaves, think of shin guards, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, so that's 15 pounds for the the tip of his spear. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, "Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine or are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So, the valley of Eli. So the the Philistines have encroached upon Israelite territory. They're attacking the Israelites. Meet them in battle. You kind of see they're both on a hill with a valley in between. We know this goes on. For this monster of a man comes out, and he taunts Israel. So what he's proposing? It's called the. It's this. Particular type of warfare. We never really see it in the Old Testament. It's the first time we see it. We don't know if people actually followed the rules. But the idea is when I'm fighting Jerry, my God is fighting his. And so if I win, it's because my God is stronger than his God. And if he wins, it's because his God's stronger than my God. And so rather than all of our armies fighting, just he and I fight. And again, if I win, it's an indication that my God is stronger. And what Goliath says is, if your guy beats me, then we'll all become subject to you. That's not what happens, but that's what he says would happen. Again, we don't know if anybody actually followed those rules or if it was more just a psychological ploy. And again, someone like Goliath, he's not really nervous that anybody is going to beat him. He's a massive, massive man. So the, the tallest guy who we know in recorded history, Robert Wadlow... That's 8 feet 11. So on the right, that's Shaquille O'Neal. If that gives you an indication of how big this guy is. That's a wax rendering of this guy, Robert Wadlow, and that Shaq standing next to him. 500 pounds about. When he was 9, he could carry his 170-pound dad up the stairs on his back. Just a massive, massive guy. So I don't know that 9 feet 9 is a stretch. There's There have been... Uh, Several people, multiple people who were over eight feet tall. So that, that's not, I don't know if that's hard for you to think. Uh, nobody could be that tall. I don't know that it's that difficult to think nine feet nine. And again, and everything about him was meant to intimidate. The way he was dressed, he had on all of this armor 126 pounds of scale armor. So think of like little shells tied together. That's what it helped him move a little bit. He had this huge spear. Uh, it says a javelin. That was actually probably a curved sword that he had um, on his back. He had an armor bearer. Everything about him was meant to intimidate the Israelites. And he was. They were scared to death. They did, they did not know what to do. It could have been just genuine fear. I'm going to lose if I fight him. It could have been this sense of, well, if these terms are actually followed, and if I go out and I fight Jerry and Jerry wins, then all of my guys have lost. We're all going to become subject to him and I don't feel like I've got a good enough chance to do that. So it could have been this sense of uh, maybe almost wisdom of I, I can't beat him and I don't want everybody else's fate to hinge on whether or not I win. If you can just imagine trying to think about how you would attack the guy. So if you're nine feet nine, think how long your reach is and then put a spear in your hand. How is anybody getting close to him? Nobody's getting close to him at all. It's like those old cartoons where the guy puts his hand on someone's forehead and they're swinging and they're not getting close. I mean, that's the picture. Nobody's getting near this guy in hand-to-hand combat. Nobody's got a gun to shoot him and nobody's going to get close to him. He's got armor all over the place and arrow is not penetrating it. And he's got a guy holding a shield. Very difficult to know how in the world anyone is going to beat him One on one, and he's cocky, he's arrogant, very disrespectful to the Lord. So that's Goliath. Now we meet David. Now David was from was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, Jesse was very old. His three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war: the firstborn Eliab, the second Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul. To tend his father's sheep. The last time we saw David, he was permanently, or he seemed to be at least semi-permanently, in Saul's court as an armor bearer. Now we see he's coming. He's going for. He's going from home to the battle lines and back. Don't know what changed. Don't know how much time has passed. Uh, David's not in the war, and so a minimum age, or the, the age for fighting was twenty, so he's less than twenty. He was anointed about 15, so there's a five-year gap in there, five-year span. We don't know everything that went on, but for whatever reason, David seems to have been released from Saul, and he's primarily living at home and going back and forth to the battle lines. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening, and he took his stand. And Jesse said to his son David, "'Take roasted grain and ten loaves of bread for your brothers, and hurry to their camp. Take ten cheeses to the commander of their unit.' See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There was Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle position, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines and asked his brothers how they were. So the idea... Uh, the army was supplied from the home front. That was part of your responsibility, was to send food for your own, whoever in your family was fighting in addition to their leaders and commanders. So that's what Jesse did through David. Here, you go take this so your brothers have something to eat and bring back word that everybody is doing okay. David left his things. So uh, we got that as he was talking with them. Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites have been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing with him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they've been saying. And said, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's oldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, why do you come down here? With whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. What have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter and the men men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul said, you're not able to go out and fight against this Philistine. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. So, David's there. He's done his job taking the food to his brothers. And he hears, maybe for the first time ever, he hears what Goliath is saying. So imagine, every morning and every night for 40 days, Goliath is taunting the Israelite armies. It's a huge burden ...on the nation for them to be standing around every day. If they're out there standing around, they're not at home. Who's taking care of the crops? Who's taking care of the animals? And that stuff all still has to run at home because you've got to feed the guys on the front lines. It's, it's difficult. And Saul, maybe because of that, cho- chooses to accept Goliath's challenge. Don't, don't know why, but he does. And he offers some inducements. I'll give money. I'll give my daughter... And I'll keep, and your family won't have to pay taxes. Those are huge deals. That's what I'm going to give to whoever's whoever can beat Goliath, and still nobody goes forward. And David, he's, he's indignant when he hears what Goliath says about the Lord, and he says, "I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it." His brother gets upset. We don't know why, and maybe it's just older brother, younger brother type stuff. You know, if you're an older brother and your younger brother kind of starts hanging around your friend, sometimes you. Try to put him in his place. Maybe it's that simple. I don't know. There's no indication that David was conceited or any of the things that Eliab was saying. We don't hear from Eliab again. So that's kind of moved past that. And David is brought to Saul and Saul's looking at him again. He's 18, 19 years old. And he's going, you don't have a shot against this guy. You don't have a shot. He's been a warrior for since his youth. And you're a kid. And David gives him his resume. I've killed a lion and a bear. And I'll kill this animal, too. He's just like them. God will give him into my hands. And to me, it's a huge risk on Saul's part if they're actually serious about those terms. If Saul is actually thinking, whoever we send out, if that person loses, then we're all going to concede. That's a huge risk to send out David. Again, he's he's a young kid at this point. He's not an experienced warrior. He's not even old enough to be in the army. And to send him out and pin the hopes of your nation on him, it's, it's desperation or, or something. But Saul says, okay, you can go and you can fight. Then Saul dressed David in his own armor or his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around, but he could not use, he could, excuse me, because he was not used to them. I can't go in these because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, and put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag. And with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bare in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome. So this is the third time we've read that David is handsome. He must have been something to look at. And he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog? That you should come at me with sticks. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin. But I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole world will know that there's a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from its sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. That's two of their cities. The dead were strewn all along the road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul was watching David going out to meet the Philistines, so this is a flashback, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? As surely as you live, your majesty, I don't know. Find out whose son this, this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistines, so this is real time, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistines' head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I'm the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. So we see the battle. You knew that was coming. So Saul tries to help. He may be his only person that has armor in all of Israel. He tries to put it on David. Saul's the tallest guy in Israel, a head taller than everyone else. So of course it doesn't fit. So David can't do anything with it. So he takes it off and he goes with what he knows. And he goes to a, a stream and he picks up five stones. I don't know, don't think slingshot. A sling was something more like this. And it was a very effective weapon. Size of a tennis ball. They used rocks about the size of a tennis ball. When you, um, They could be hurled at 100 to 150 miles an hour. The guys who were really good could be accurate up to 200 yards. Very effective Weapon. This is gross, but here's what happens when you get hit. So that guy's, his name's Delano DeShields Jr. On the left, that's what he looks like. On the right, that's what he looks like after he gets hit in the face with the 90 mile an hour fastball. So a rock is harder than a baseball, and 110 miles an hour is, is faster than 90 miles an hour. Not hard to believe at all that if a rock hit Goliath going at that speed, that it would at a minimum knock him out. If not, kill him. Somebody did a whole bunch of physics, um, and he said that one of those stones coming out of one of those slings would have the stopping power of a 357 magnum. It's It's a legitimate weapon. And even if you were fully armored, the impact of the stone could still shatter your bones through your armor. So regardless of what Goliath's helmet looked like, the rock hitting him there still could have cracked his skull open. Again, very powerful weapon. So uh, David, Goliath, sees David, taunts him again. You're a boy. You're coming after me with sticks. I'm going to kill you. And David says, you're not. You picked with the, on the wrong guy. It's not me that you've picked on. It's God. You've defied him. And he's going to hand you into my hands to demonstrate to the whole world that he's God. And he wants all of these people to know he's the one who saves. Remember, Israel said, we want a king who will lead us in battle. And you see here a pivot with David saying, that's not what it is. It's not by sword or by spear. The Lord is the one who delivers us in battle. And so he puts this stone in the sling and he flings it at Goliath and knocks him again. He's either dead or he's unconscious, runs over, grabs Goliath's sword, cuts off his head, parades that thing around. All of the Israelites at that point pursue the Philistines and slaughter them and plunder them. And then you have this almost aside over here. Saul is going, now who's, whose kid is that? Now David has known Saul. He's been in his court. He's played the liar for him. He doesn't ask who David is. He says, who's your, who, who is his son? I, I, we have a small staff of nine people, and I, I don't know the dads of all nine of them for sure. It's not. I don't think it's far-fetched that Saul wouldn't know the dad of someone who had Served under him. He wants to know maybe because he's got to extend this tax break to Jesse. David obviously doesn't have a family. He's still young and so maybe that's what Saul is saying is he's going to extend this benefit to David's dad and he needs to know who he is. And so that's how this again iconic chapter wraps up. So for us thinking about that lots of ways of understanding the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. One that's uh, been neglected a bit uh, when we live. It was a very popular way of understanding Jesus' death and resurrection until maybe the 15 or 1600s. It's Jesus as a victor. Jesus as one who overcomes sin and Satan and death. You can see the picture up there. Jesus standing on the head of a serpent. That's the very first Messianic prophecy. Genesis 3.15, God speaking to Satan in the form of a serpent. One will come who will crush your head. His other foot is on a lion. That idea from First Peter that the enemy is like a, a lion prowling around looking for someone uh, to devour. Jesus' death and resurrection, he overcomes our enemies. Sin, Satan, death. In our story, Jesus is David or David is Jesus. However you want to see that, David is a picture of what Je- David defeating Goliath is a picture of what Jesus does on our behalf. He defeats enemies that we can't defeat. For us, He triumphs over all. We just sang that song. That's Jesus as victory. He makes a public spectacle of all of the evil powers that array themselves against the kingdom of God. I don't know if you, when you think of Jesus' death and resurrection, I don't know if you think in terms of a military victory. That's a one, it's a key way, a powerful way of understanding what Jesus has done for you. Now, the the victory is not complete. Goliath is down, but there's still an army. And they still have swords and they still have spears. And they may be on the run. They can still cause some damage. They can still hurt people. It wouldn't surprise me at all if some of the Israelites in the battle were wounded and maybe even died. I'm not a military historian, but there's a little slide up there about D-Day, World War II. It's a picture. I think it's a good picture. Jesus' resurrection is like D-Day. It's the turning point in a war. Jesus' return at some point in the undefined future is like V-E Day when the war is finally over. In between those two days, during that 11-month period, there were still hundreds of thousands of people who were wounded and a couple of hundred thousand who were killed. Even though there was a turning point, people would say effectively the war in Europe was over after D-Day. Effectively. The cosmic battle was over when Jesus rose from the grave, but sin and Satan and death will not be thrown into the lake of fire until some point in the undefined future and in between Jesus' resurrection and his return there can still wreak havoc and that 's where we live in a war zone. Jesus did defeat our enemies our enemies are not yet destroyed many of you live in tension in some level of suffering and you make pain. You're in a war zone. That's what happens. People get hurt. The Israelites, Goliath is dead. They're pursuing this army. That army still has swords and spears and they can still do damage. Why doesn't God finish it now? When God finishes it, when sin and Satan and death are ultimately destroyed, the door's closed. There's no more opportunity for anyone to say yes to Jesus. You see that in Revelation. That's the end of the road for all of us. This world, this age is over in the next anus and in his grace leaves the door open. And so we suffer on some level in order to, to give opportunity for others to be reconciled to God. And in his wisdom, that's, it's his call on when Jesus comes back. And we're glad that we're not the ones that make that decision. Because when Jesus comes back, there's no more opportunity for anybody to be reconciled to God. And until that happens, though, we do live in a war zone. The outcome is is secure. The outcome is it's already known. But there can still be some damage done. I'm sure many of you have grown up play in sports and most likely at some point you were on a team and you were in a game and y'all were you you were dominating and it was very you were going to win that they weren't coming back think about the way you play when you're on when you're in that situation the freedom that you play with the lack of pressure that you feel the outcome it's done you already know you're going to win you still have to play you can still get hurt the other team can still score But none of that's going to change the ultimate outcome. That's a bit, it's rough, but that's a bit of where we live now. We live in a world where we can still be hurt. People we love can still be hurt. The outcome is secure if you're on the side of Jesus. I hope, as you think about Jesus as the victor, what that can begin to do is change your perspective on what it looks like to suffer and struggle. And it can put that in a broader context. Of the fact that the, bat, the, the war is already won. Regardless of what's going on on the battles that we're experiencing day to day. Paul said it this way in, first, in Philippians 1. That classic verse. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He's writing that from jail. He's writing that as someone who suffered tremendously in his life. And what he says is. I, I win either way. If I live. Then I get to go on. Spreading the gospel. I get to go on being an instrument of God's grace to other people. If I die, then I get to be with Jesus. I can't lose. Either way. And that's our, that hopefully can become our attitude in time. It doesn't matter. The worst thing these powers and principalities can do to us is kill us. And then we get to go be with Jesus. And if they don't, then as long as we're here, we have opportunities to work with Jesus. What he's doing in our world. Either way, we win. There's, again, that freedom that comes from knowing the outcome is already guaranteed. You can't lose if you're on his side. You can still experience pain, but you can't ultimately lose. There's a freedom that comes from understanding and grabbing onto that. Some of you, as Sean and Jamie are sharing, you're going, there's no way. There's no way I'm doing that. There's no way. I would ever conceive or consider, or maybe you're putting yourself in the position of their parents and going, There's no way. They can't lose. They can't lose. They either, as long as they have breath, they get to cooperate with what God is doing in that part of the world. And if at some point they don't, it will be devastating and they'll be in heaven with Jesus. You don't lose. And the same thing is true for us, just on a different scale. I want to encourage you, as you struggle, recognize you're in a war zone, 100%, and it's chaotic, and it's dangerous. But the outcome is never in doubt, and David shows us how to fight. So there's a sense in which David is a picture of Jesus. And there's another sense in which he, he encourages us, he's a, a model for us of how to fight. There's two things that you see in David. One, he has a deep love for God, and two... He has a strong faith in God, and both of those things are important for us. First, this deep love for God. It's not a coincidence, I don't think, that David is first introduced as a worshiper before he's introduced as a warrior. The reason he fights for God is because he has this deep love of God. And the same thing, again, can be true for us. When you think about what David says about Goliath, five times Goliath says, Actions are, are described as defying God, taunting, mocking, heaping scorn. Maybe the first time in David's life he's ever heard anybody talk about God like that. He's, he's raised in Bethlehem, a small town. Everybody in Bethlehem is a, is a Jew, and they don't talk about God like this. They may not be devout, but they don't talk about God like this. And maybe the first time God, uh, David ever heard it, and it stirs something in him, and he gets angry. And he's not in it for himself. He's not in it for his reputation He's saying, who who is going to stand up to this animal and say, you don't get to talk about God that way. I'll do it. I'm going to do it. It reminds me of Jesus when he cleanses the temple and the disciples. This is in John chapter 2. And the disciples are trying to put that in a context. They don't have a grid for what Jesus just did. And John says, they remembered this verse from Psalm 69, Zeal for your house consumes me. When Jesus saw what was going on in the temple, it stirred something in him. This isn't right. And so he acted, in that case, violently in order to cleanse the temple. The first petition in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be your name. We want your name to be holy. And what David is saying is Goliath is demeaning the name of God and somebody's got to do something about it. This deep love that he has for God is one who worships him, fuels him, and motivates him to go to Saul and say, I'm your guy. And then he steps out in faith. He steps out in faith. Faith, Love is cultivated privately. Faith is expressed publicly. That's almost always the case. David has cultivated this deep love for God in the fields. Read the Psalms. He has deep, deep connection with the Lord. And then it expresses itself in this very public act of faith when he, said, when he charges Goliath and says, I'm, I'm taking out you and we're taking out your whole army because you're defying God and he's given you into our hands. Three times David says, the Lord will give you and will give y'all into our hands. He recognizes this is God's battle. God's the one who's going to win. Faith is risky almost always. It's reckless almost never. David doesn't, the dumbest thing David could do is to go out in Saul's armor. It doesn't matter how good it is. What's he going to do? He's not even going to be able to get into the, to, close enough to Goliath to take a swing at him. Not, the, the worst thing he could do is pick up a sword or a spear and try to go toe-to-toe with Goliath. That's reckless. Risky is, I'm going to go out here and fight this guy who's nine feet nine and is a champion. And not all I've, ever, I've never even been in a battle before. But he goes with what he has. He goes with this sling and he perfectly, who, who, who better? When you think about the situation, you've got this big lumbering giant of a man who probably doesn't move very well. If nothing else, at nine feet nine, he's got a big head. So it gives you a big target. And then you got a guy who's quick and fast and really good with a sling. Effective 100 yards out, 150 yards out. Feels like a bullet when it hits you. What better situation? It's risky. It's not reckless. It's an expression of faith and dependence on the Lord. God is giving you into my hands. And God is giving your army into our army's hands. I don't know how you think about... Life, how you conceive when things go bad. People have asked me about Charlottesville and what my opinions on that are. I mean, it's terrible. It's a tragedy. But honestly, and I mean this as genuinely as I can. I don't think about it a ton because it's not where I live. We live in a war zone. It doesn't surprise me when things like that happen. It doesn't surprise me when things like Spain happen. We, li- or we live in a, in a war zone and that's what happens in a war zone. And my responsibility is the dirt that God has put me on, which is here. This is where I have influence. This is where I have relationships. This is where I can ultimately make a difference. I can't do anything about that unless I'm going to move. And I'm not. But I I can't. And so for me, it doesn't diminish the significance of what happens in these other parts of our nation or these other parts of the world. But ultimately for me... It's a recognition that this is where God has placed me. And I need to take responsibility for here. And so I need to identify the giants that are here. What are they? When you think about where you live and move, are there Goliaths that you see? Is it racism? Is it injustice? Is it greed? Is it selfishness? What are the giants in the places where you live? What would it look like for you? To, like David, expressions of faith motivated by love for God. What would it look like for you to begin to act? I'm not big on grand gestures. I think ultimately they fall flat. Small expressions of faith over time. That's what makes the difference. I'm not on social media at all, so don't, but I don't, no, I'm pretty confident that's not the key. When Jesus says, Pray for God's kingdom to come. I don't think it comes through tweets and posts. I don't. So my encouragement to you, when you think about where you live, when you're stirred, when you look at where you live and you see giants, whatever, however you would classify those things, whatever you would say, don't think about people. People aren't the enemy. The enemy's the enemy. But when you think about strongholds, I see so many people who are struggling with this. I see this dynamic, and it seems intractable. When you bump up against that, my encouragement to you is don't, don't post anything. Do something. Do anything. Anything at all. That requires more of you than your thumbs. Anything. Motivated by love. Expressing your faith. Do that. Sit somewhere else. That's breaking down a wall. It's small. Acts of faith over time. That's what changes things. It's okay, but you can be aware of what's going on. That, if that makes you an informed intercessor or an informed citizen, you do those things. But you recognize where God has planted you and where your responsibilities are. This is where you have influence. This is where you have relationships. It's easy in some senses to let ourselves off the hook by talking about what should be happening somewhere else. Versus take taking responsibility for what is or is not happening right here. And it will require something of you. If you want to see things change, then we need to do things differently. I can't tell you what those things are because I don't even know what the giants are in the places where you live. But I know if you want to see those things change, God's put you here. He's given you influence. He's given you relationships. He's put a spirit within you. Motivated by love, not by self-righteousness. Not by trying to prove yourself, not by trying to disprove anyone else. Motivated by love for God, which is cultivated in private. It's the only thing that will sustain and keep you from becoming a Pharisee or a legalist or an anarchist. That's it. Only love for God. Expressed through acts of faith, which will be public. They don't have to be grand. And you certainly don't need to tell everybody what you're doing. But they will be public in the sense that it will require you to do something outside of yourself. That's how change happens. That's how Goliaths are defeated. We live in a war zone. And the enemies that we're fighting have all been defeated. None of them have been destroyed. We're part of the mop-up mission. We can absolutely still get hurt. And most of us will at some point. And most of the people we love will get hurt at some point. Thankfully, we live in a situation where to live is Christ and to die is gain. We don't lose either way. So there's a freedom for us to engage. To engage regularly in acts of faith motivated by love. Let's pray. Bo, just going to strum, pick around for a minute. And I just want you to be before the Lord, quietly asking him. This is sounds heavy. It actually should be the opposite of that because victory is assured. You can catch up. It doesn't matter what they do. There's not enough time left on the clock. If you're standing with Jesus, it literally is impossible for you to lose. You can't. There's no way you can lose if you're standing with him. So let that stir hope in you. Let me give you a couple of things to think about. One, do you think of Jesus as a victor? When you think about his life and his death and his resurrection, do you see him as coming to destroy the works of the devil? And what does that mean in your life? To say Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil in my life, in my house, in my school, in my workplace, in my city. What does it mean? You live in a war zone. You're not going to see victory in any of those areas fully and completely until Jesus returns. But you can taste some and experience some and live out some of that now. You may just need to begin to ask the Lord, God, you got to start hoping me. I live depressed. Or maybe you live detached because you're afraid if you engage. Like, it, there's, there's not this sense that you've already won. So there's a freedom for you to play hard, to take risks because you can't lose. To say, Jesus, show me. You're the victor. That second song that we sang, that third song that we sang, speak of that. Give me context. 30,000 foot view on my life. For most of us, that has to do with time. We're so immersed in the... The psalmist describes our life as like grass. Flowers that fade, grass that burns up. We don't it's not our reality. It feels so long and so weighty and so permanent. God give me perspective. Particularly when I feel like the enemy's winning. Over here, maybe some of y'all are you're thinking about where you live and work and move and can name some Goliaths. Again, don't think about people. Think about dynamics. You look at those things and maybe you just kind of plow ahead. They're not going to change or if they change it's going to be somebody way more dynamic or powerful or influential than you. It's not true. All of those things have already been defeated. God's looking for somebody. Motivated by love for Him. Expressing trust in Him. These acts of obedience and faith. To advance His kingdom in those areas. So ask Him, God, what does that look like for me? Very practically. Small acts of faith over time. Change culture. would you speak to us now in this moment would you stir hope and life would you give us a sense of what it means to be on the winning side even when it feels at times like we're losing would you speak very specifically to us can we do? How do we participate? We want to be reckless. We want to be willing to take risks. Come forward. We'll pray with you about anything at all that you have going on. There's two groups in particular, and it may be hard to admit that you're in either one, but I want to encourage you, if you would, um, be willing to come forward, get prayer for this. If you feel hopeless in some area of your life, I'm not asking if you're on an antidepressant, I'm not asking if you're Eeyore, but if there's some area of your life where you have given up hope, I want you to come forward and let us pray. magic about coming forward, but it is an expression of faith. The second thing is if you need courage, like you may have an idea about what you should do. You know what Goliaths are. You actually know what you need to do about it. You're honestly, you're just afraid. Would you allow us to pray with you that God would give you courage? Courage doesn't mean you don't feel fear. Courage means you feel fear and you don't let it drive you. You continue to move forward in obedience. So not praying that you would feel different. We're just praying that the fear would not would not again drive you, and make your decisions for you. So you guys can stand. We're gonna close with worship. Y'all come forward for prayer and then Bo will dismiss us after this.